Hey guys, welcome back to The V Word. This is Ask a Lady Doc, our mini-series where we talk to all different kinds of doctors who specialize in different areas within women's health. It turns out we've got a lot more than just vaginas, and there's a lot to say about all those other different parts of our bodies. Stay tuned. Producer Aisha Chudari has this interview. My name is Abba Kandawal. I'm a non-invasive or imaging cardiologist. I am the cardiovascular clinic chief. I also am a part of the Women's Heart Health Program, as well as the SATI program at Stanford. We're here today because heart disease remains the number one killer of both men and women. And um, But there is this perception that heart disease is um, a man's disease. Why do you think that there is this perception, just to start off? Well, I mean, I think that if you go back to the history of heart disease, traditionally the media and our social policies were addressed towards men because they were the ones who were going out, working, and dropping dead. And so that's how it was traditionally addressed. And when the paradigm shifted, women were also going into the workplace and dropping dead of heart attacks. Unfortunately, that that media shift didn't happen until uh, the AHA Go Red campaign. And since we have launched that campaign, you have seen an increase in awareness that it can affect women. Still not perfect, but but we have made some strides in awareness, I think. Mm -hmm. What are those strides? Like, what can we do to increase awareness? Well, I think education in all platforms. So amongst our peers as cardiologists, we want to make sure that they're aware treating female patients in the emergency room and on the wards, that they're carefully looking at the risk factors. We want to train our trainees, so our fellows, our residents, our medical students. We want to actually, at a broader sense, train the community and really getting down to our children and let them know that these things affect both men and women equally. I especially wanted to talk to you today because um, there was a study that came out in circulation and it stated that the overall proportion of heart attack related hospital admissions in the U.S. attributable to young patients ages 35 to 54 steadily climbed with the largest increase observed in young women. So during those periods, there was a rise um, from 21% to 31% among young women compared to 30 to 33%. So um, first of all, is this surprising to you? Um, Unfortunately, this is not surprising to me. Uh, I think that those who take care of women with heart disease, we've seen, again, over the last decade or two, great strides in a reduction overall mortality from heart disease for both men and women when looking at them as an aggregate. Uh, the American Heart Association has some nice data on that. However, when you break them down into uh, smaller groups of these younger women, they are actually increased. And partly, I think it's because of that 80-20 rule in medicine, where we learn the common presentations of common diseases, but we forget that there are outliers. And it's those outliers then that get missed and have worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. What are some other reasons that we might be seeing this rise? I mean, I think, so when we think of health, I I actually believe in the WHO definition of health, and I'm going to quote it so that I do it correctly, but it's a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease, 
and infirmity. So in medicine, traditionally, we're taught to look at the biology, but we aren't given the time or the maybe the financial backing or the policies to step back and take a look at the context of the patient. A lot of a lot of the disease in these younger women may be related to those other contexts, whether it be single parent households, whether it be poverty, whether it be at-risk minorities, which in that study I think you appreciated that the risk for African-American women was higher than their counterparts. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that part of the reason why we see this increase is because we are looking at just the biology, perhaps, and not the entire context of the patient. Maybe we could talk more about the inequities in care. There, I saw this other study from the UK that showed that there were more women dying from the same conditions that men were surviving from. So I think one of the things we know with heart disease is that there are different types of heart disease. So when we look at blockages in the big arteries, oftentimes we can treat them with things like stents. We know that in women, traditionally, they actually have more trouble with having heart attacks, but not necessarily having plaques in those big arteries. So when you look at disparities research, you have to take that a little bit into context, that they sometimes will have atypical causes of heart attack that don't respond to the same therapies. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I think in the UK study that I think you're referring to, it was actually looking at atherosclerotic disease. So it was actually the same disease they were looking at. in general, most of the studies we look at show that there is disparities in aspirin use, in um, antiplatelet use, non-aspirin-based, in beta blocker use, in stent use, and referral for bypass, as well as referral for cardiac rehab. Those are kind of the big things that oftentimes, oh, and, and statins as well. Uh, so I think that you see that consistently. And the question is why? Well, there's a lot of theories. Uh, I think that one of the theories is that women sometimes experience more side effects, and so they're more reluctant to take these therapies. Mm -hmm. It may be that women are usually about a decade older when they present with these same problems. Maybe there's polypharmacy. They've got 15 pills, and it's hard to take all your pills. Uh, There may be a bias in the prescriber not appreciating their true risk. You know, again, going back to the socioeconomic portion of it, you have to be able to afford your medicines also, and a good portion of women in California do live in poverty. So to think about all of those things, I think there are several disparities, the ideologies of which we still have to learn and figure out how to to target. Is there something about women that when they come to the hospital, they're presenting differently? Like this circulation study showed that women are less likely to receive the proper care, AKA receiving aspirins, beta blockers, cholesterol-related drugs, and imaging. So how are they presenting differently? So if you look at, at different studies, there's some conflicting evidence as to how do women present? Do they have different symptoms or not? My takeaway from kind of looking at all of the literature is that women still, when presenting with an acute event, present with chest pain. They just say it differently. Mm -hmm. So it may not be as the traditional crushing chest pressure. It may be tightness. It may be tiredness in their chest. It may be something different, but it's usually still in the chest region. And in addition, if you look at kind of men versus women, women tend to have more symptoms. So 
on average four or five symptoms. So sometimes in a busy emergency room, that doctor might have trouble teasing out that chest discomfort is one of the predominant ones. They may focus on the fatigue or they may focus on the arm pain Mm -hmm. and not realize that there is a coronary event going on. Right. Wouldn't the first um, sort of action be to check the EKG or something? And would that immediately let them know what's going on? That is true. So an EKG is the first action you would utilize when you recognize that it's a coronary event happening. And again, going back to dis- disparities or differences in um, gender or in, in sex differences is that men tend to have something called ST elevation MI more than women. So that EKG may look very abnormal in a man. It may not look as abnormal in a woman but both of them could still have the same level of biomarker uh, increase. So they could still have the same severity of event, but it may be easier to diagnose in a man than a woman sometimes, yeah. Is it true that women and doctors still believe that women are less likely to have a heart attack before menopause? Um, And is that also a reason that less women are getting screened for heart disease risk factors? I I think that, as I alluded to before with the American Heart Association studies, originally, you know, very few women appreciated that they were at risk. I think now we've moved to almost half can appreciate that they are at risk. But again, it's traditionally after menopause. But what we're learning now uh, for those of us who see women with heart disease is that there are atypical causes of heart attacks. So that could happen with before menopause. And also, just as a national trend, we're seeing higher rates of obesity, hypertension, diabetes. So, I mean, it stands to reason that the event rate could also go up premenopausal. And we actually, at at our clinic in the Women's Heart Health Center, we look at things like pregnancy to help kind of identify those higher risk women earlier because we know that that's kind of a woman's first stress test. And if if they're failing it with having preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, um, you know, those, you know, peripartum cardiomyopathy, any of those things, then we know that they're already at much higher risk for having a future event. And what else can a woman do to find out if she's at risk? Well, I think it's taking the time for herself to actually seek health care and get proper risk stratification. So either going to a good primary doctor who knows both the traditional as well as the non-traditional risk factors for women and gets a thorough family history, uh, or going to a risk uh, cardiovascular risk prevention group such as ours, where they can sit down and take time getting a careful history, looking at their lifestyle, their diet, um, again, all their risk factors, and and finding ways that they can intervene early. What are some ways that doctors can tackle implicit biases they might have to ensure that women are receiving the care they need? That's a very good question. Uh, we try in our group every so often to test ourselves. There are different tools you can utilize actually online to, um, you know, little tests, mini tests you can take to see if you will have those biases. And being aware that we do all have some biases is important. I, I think that it's, it's a hard problem to tackle actually. I, I don't know that I have a correct solution for it, but I think it's just being aware that we all have some bias and keeping ourselves in check. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other way is just to 
to continue to work with colleagues that do see these patients to remind ourselves that, look, you know, when a young woman with maybe no risk factors come in, comes into the emergency room with discomfort in the chest, yeah, it might be from the stomach, it might be from her lungs, but it's also appropriate to think, could it be from her heart arteries? Could it be a tear in the artery, like a dissection event, as opposed to traditional plaque? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think just keeping in touch with the literature is important too. Mm-hmm. And what are some causes for those uncommon heart issues? So I alluded to one, which was the coronary artery dissection. Mm -hmm. That's gaining a lot of awareness because it's basically, traditionally when you get a heart attack, it's because the arteries of the heart have a blockage from plaque. But in these women, what happens is for unclear reasons, the inner lining of the artery tears and the blood goes around the sidewall as opposed to through the main lumen Mm -hmm. of the artery and thereby it kind of closes off the artery. And so they have heart attacks. That's one example. The, uh, there are several others, such as um, sometimes the artery can spasm, and that can cause a relative uh, supply-demand mismatch. Mm-hmm. That can cause a heart attack. There's something called broken heart syndrome. I'm not sure if, you're f- if you've heard about that, but in the media you'll see a woman, after her husband dies or has a major life event, will come into the hospital with a major heart attack, and then they look at her arteries and they're open and um, they often present with heart failure as well, but it's really the stress response of such event that leads to a, to a, to a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, those are just some to name a few. Is it reasonable to say that this rise that we're seeing in heart attacks among young women is because more and more women are in the workforce and you know enduring stress or? I mean, I'm not, sh- I'm not entirely sure you could make that big extra- extrapolation. I do think that the modern day woman has a lot more demands placed on them. There's all kinds of literature on the second shift and how, I mean, traditionally a man was out in the workforce, a woman was working at home. And now oftentimes women, either whether they're in a single parent household or not, they're not only responsible at home, but they're asked to go out into the workforce too. So they do have a lot more responsibility placed on them. Maybe that's resulting in them not having the time to, to take care of their health, to, to exercise, to take time doing meal prep and having the healthy meal choices as opposed to maybe picking up that fast food. So I mean, I, th- I think that in a way it probably doesn't help, but I, I actually think what's happening is that we are now, now that we've done a great job of taking care of kind of the plaque-based heart disease, we are now able to turn our attention to some of these other causes mm-hmm. of heart attacks. It feels like there's such a big like systemic issue that doesn't even start with you, it starts with communities. And I'm just wondering if there's like some sort of outreach that can be done to sort of educate and create awareness amongst, especially minority communities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's actually where it has to start for it to make any impactful change because I, as a physician, can see a certain number of patients and I can educate a certain number of patients, but organizations like the American Heart Association or the CDC have the power to really get into communities and engage communities to give them the power to to know what their health, you know, what they should expect of their health. And I think that certain communities don't have as much trust of the healthcare system. There's been studies looking at kind of going into barber shops in uh, African-American communities to work for blood pressure control. Mm-hmm. And so I think that using sim- similar strategies in the state of California where 
you look at the community, you look at where the base of the community is, and then targeting leaders or community champions, if you will, and educating them so they can spread the word so the community as a whole can get healthier mm-hmm. would be good. Um, I'm wondering if we could switch gears a little bit and talk about specifically what are the symptoms of a heart attack? What are the common symptoms and what are the uncommon symptoms? So traditionally speaking, most of the time people will have some type of chest discomfort, either pressure, tightness, squeezing, stabbing. It is a sensation in their chest. It can be on their lower chest, on the left, the right. It can go up the jaw. It can go down the arm. It can be associated with trouble breathing. Sometimes they'll feel their heart racing. Sometimes they will get sweaty. The key is it's usually an acute onset, meaning it comes on fairly rapidly. It usually doesn't get better. And oftentimes, if it's kind of what we call it like a stuttering heart attack, they might start noticing symptoms a little bit beforehand, like a week beforehand, where when they're trying to do any type of activity or anything that requires more energy or effort, that they are having trouble when they previously could do it. But honestly, Aisha, this, the sobering fact that I still I still feel very humbled by is if you look at the number of women that die suddenly of heart attack, two-thirds of them have no prior symptoms. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, yes, knowing the symptoms is important, but even more important, I think, taking a step back mm-hmm. and looking at your risk factors and making sure you can do your best to modify those. Right. My mom called me this morning and she was like, I read something online that I don't have to take aspirin anymore. <laughs> she is correct. <laughs> she is correct. So we had our big national conference, the American College of Cardiology, this weekend, and they just released a set of new guidelines. It's like a lovely 150-page document if you have time to read it. Um, and it talks about primary prevention, meaning trying to prevent that first heart event. and the traditional thinking has been we give aspirin to people that have had heart attacks to prevent their secondary heart attack. We know that 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 works. So for a long time we were giving everybody aspirin that was at high risk to prevent that first heart attack or that first stroke. And there was a lot of data in the past supporting this, but the most recent guidelines which kind of re-reviewed all of that data uh, suggested that we should not be routinely prescribing aspirin for all patients. Uh, they gave some parameters about looking at risk factors, um, looking at kind of non-traditional risk factors, such as something called a calcium score to look at kind of the plaque burden. They talked about um, using newer cholesterol parameters like lipoprotein A. It's an inherited cholesterol. Um, they also talked about using shared decision-making. So they really put an emphasis on the patient and provider having a discussion of what it means to be on that aspirin because we know that it's not a risk-free therapy. Mm -hmm. Meaning that it could increase the chance of bleeding in some people? Correct. And are the the lipoprotein A and um, what's the other one you just mentioned? Uh, Are those blood tests? Uh, So the lipoprotein A is a blood test. Uh, Almost one in four people have an elevation, so it's a very common problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the right context it should be checked, especially in certain families where there's a high history of um, heart attack and stroke. Mm -hmm. And then the coronary calcium score is actually a modified CAT scan. So there is some radiation, not much, but some associated with that test. And it looks for calcium around the arteries of the heart. 
And we know that that's associated with plaque and higher events in the future. I feel like we already covered this, but what sort of diagnostic testing and procedures are available that you believe people should be aware of? So, I mean, I think that one of the most important things a clinician can do is spend the time to actually talk and listen to their patient and hear the full context of what what their situation is and so that they can listen for any type of risk factor, whether it be increased stress, whether it be stress eating, whether it be perhaps um, decreased exercise because they may not live in the safest area, um, they're not sleeping, any of those things, you know, getting a good history and then identifying any risk factors. Um, also in that history, looking for a history of cancer and cancer treatments. So uh, those are kind of the things that they should do. And then beyond that, uh, if a woman is getting pregnant, they oftentimes get something called a glucose tolerance test where they have to drink a lot of sugar and then we check how their body responds to it. Being aware that if that's abnormal during pregnancy that in the future that person is at higher risk. So we actually get a very detailed OB history and a menopause history. So if they are going through premature menopause or have um, cardiac events or any issues during pregnancy. So that's number one. So good history, listen to the patient, identify all risk factors. Um, then the next thing would be to make sure that someone is keeping an eye on things like obesity, what they're eating, their blood pressure, their blood sugar, um, and their uh, cholesterol panel. So those are the first cornerstones. There's been um, back and forth evidence as to whether a screening EKG should be done because it can often lead to further diagnostic testing which may or may not be appropriate but I you know I personally think in the right hands it's not the worst thing to to consider. What should women who are post-menopausal do something differently? What exactly happens that um, where they're not necessarily as protected as they were before from heart attacks? So uh, menopause is a life-changing event where you start losing your estrogen, which is considered our kind of protective hormone. In that time, a woman's body goes through major changes. For some, it's not so bad. For others, it can be quite dramatic. They can have high blood pressure. Their cholesterol could change. They could be at increased risk for abnormal heart rhythms. Their weight distribution will change. Their ability for muscle mass will change. I mean, I'm just naming a few their sleep will will change hot flashes are lovely um so i mean i think all these things change during menopause and and we have to keep an eye that around that time a woman might think oh well i've never had trouble with high blood pressure around that time she may she may develop that Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the other thing to keep in mind again i'm going to kind of beat this uh in your head is that pregnancy keeping that pregnancy history in mind so these women when they see their practitioner letting them know hey you know I hadn't I gained 50 pounds during my pregnancy I gained more than what's normal for my pregnancy I had high blood pressure during pregnancy because we know those women are almost eightfold more likely to have high blood pressure or diabetes Mm -hmm. down the line so kind of being aware of those things I mean I think for women we are traditionally the caretaker and we are spending most of our time looking out for others But it's really important to kind of keep in mind that we have to take care of ourselves. Not only is it important for modeling for our children, 
but it's important for our, our community because if we're healthy, we know that our communities are healthy. So, you know, just being your own advocate, knowing your body, if, if you're having symptoms and you do not have a, somebody giving you an explanation as to why those symptoms occur, continue to seek assistance until you get answers because, you know, too often women will ignore symptoms and then unfortunately they end up coming to us after they've had their first events. So I think being proactive is very, very important. Thank you so much. If you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by the V Word team. Thanks for listening.